welcome to Infatuated, the podcast for people who really fancy a good story. I'm Emily. And I'm Rebecca. And this week we have two very different but very exciting books for you. <laughs> we have Susanna Clarke's Perinacy, which has oceans in a house. And we have Taylor Jenkins Reid's Malibu Rising, which has a house on the ocean. <laughs> hey! <laughs> So, what are you infatuated with this week? I'm infatuated with Piranesi by Susanna Clark, which came out last year, 2020, but I've actually had my copy since then and haven't read it. I never got around to reading it before Christmas and then I was home for like four months. <laughs> so, <laughs> but I finally read it and it's incredible. It's actually probably one of my favourite books I've read so far this year. Wow. Yeah, so I spoke about her first novel, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, last season. Oh, yeah. Yeah, which is over a thousand pages long. And this one's less than 300. And somehow she's done both lengths perfectly. We love the range. (laughs) So, Piranesi is a story where it is best to go in fairly blind. And I'm really conscious of that and don't want to share too much about it. But I did attend the launch event for this last year, which was hosted by Madeline Miller, and it was wonderful. Mm. And I took loads of notes because I'm a geek. Yeah. So I thought I'd like share some things that they spoke about then, and then I'll share some more like descriptive passages so you can get a feel of the book without actually knowing too much of the plot. Okay. So to begin, I want to explain who the real world Piranesi is. Right. So Giovanni Battista Piranesi was an 18th century Venetian artist famous for his etchings of imaginary prisons. Okay. They're impossible buildings, so they're maze-like. They have features like staircases that lead to nowhere. Right. And I actually have a couple pictures to show you, Mm. uh, which we can, like, put on the Instagram or something. Yeah, that works. That's one. Oh. (laughs) Oh, that's like that Dali painting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, kind, kind of, yeah. So yeah, so that Piranesi exists, and then we have the book Piranesi with narrator Piranesi, who lives in the house, which is a labyrinth-like marble building that fills with tidal seas. And as far as he's aware, the only other occupant in the house is a man he calls the Other, who he meets with at set times each week. This is already terrifying to me. (laughs) Yeah. So Susanna Clarke explained that in her 20s, she tried to write a story in a library filled with an ocean and two figures. And then later in life, she heard about Piranesi, as an artist, Piranesi, and the prison drawings, and evolved into that kind of idea, right. along with some other details, which I'll talk about later. So this book is Piranesi's journal, as he documents the tides, his meetings with the other, any like wildlife that he sees, and that's about it. But what really makes the book incredible is that Piranesi may not be a reliable narrator. Yes! (laughs) And that's what I'm going to say on the story. Uh, I'm just going to move right on to some passages. So I thought I'd read this one, which is the second entry in his journal, because it's just quite a good, like, scene-setting one. Gives you an idea of the house and also the writing style. I love an unreliable narrator. I'm very excited. Yeah. So this entry is titled A Description of the World. 
Entry for the seventh day of the fifth month in the year the albatross came to the southwestern halls. Oh, for fuck's sake. (laughs) I am determined to explore as much of the world as I can in my lifetime. To this end, I have travelled as far as the 960th hall to the west, the 890th hall to the north, and the 768th hall to the south. I have climbed up to the upper halls where the clouds move in slow procession and statues appear suddenly out of the mists. I have explored the drowned halls where the dark waters are carpeted with white water lilies. I have seen the derelict halls of the east where ceilings, floors, sometimes even walls, have collapsed and the dimness is split by shafts of grey light. In all these places I have stood in doorways and looked ahead. I have never seen any indication that the world was coming to an end, but only the regular progression of halls and passageways into the far distance. No hall, no vestibule, no staircase, no passage is without its statues. In most halls they cover all the available space, though here and there you will find an empty plinth, niche or apse, and even a blank space on a wall otherwise encrusted with statues. These absences are as mysterious in their way as the statues themselves. I have observed that, while the statues of a particular hall are more or less uniform in size, there is considerable variation between halls. In some places the figures are two or three times the height of a human being, in others more or less life-size, and in yet others only reach as high as my shoulder. The drowned halls contain statues that are gigantic, 15 to 20 metres high, but they are the exception. I have begun a catalogue in which I intend to record the position, size and subject of each statue and any other points of interest. So far I have completed the first and second southwestern halls and am engaged on the third. The enormity of this task sometimes makes me feel a little dizzy, but as a scientist and an explorer I have a duty to bear witness to the splendours of the world. The windows of the house look out upon great courtyards, Barren, empty places paved with stone. The courtyards are generally four-sided, although now and then you will come upon one with six sides, or eight, or even, these are rather strange and gloomy, only three. Outside the house there are only the celestial objects, sun, moon and stars. The house has three levels. The lower halls are the domain of the tides. Their windows, when seen from across a courtyard, are grey-green with the restless waters and white with the splatter of foam. The lower halls provide nourishment in the form of fish, crustaceans and sea vegetation. The upper halls are, as I have said, the domain of the clouds. Their windows are grey-white and misty. Sometimes you will see a whole line of windows suddenly illuminated by a flash of lightning. The upper halls give fresh water which is shed in the vestibules in the form of rain and flows in streams down walls and staircases. Between these two largely uninhabitable levels are the middle halls, which are the domain of birds and of men. The beautiful orderliness of the house is what gives us life. This morning I looked out of a window in the 18th southeastern hall. On the other side of the courtyard I saw the other looking out of a window. The window was tall and dark, the other's noble head with its high forehead and neatly trimmed beard was framed in one corner. He was lost in thought as he so often is. I waved to him. He did not see me. I waved more extravagantly. I jumped up and down with great energy. But the windows of the house are many and he did not see me.
Oh my god, this sounds like such a nightmarish but beautiful dream. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Yep. <laughs> oh, I hate that, like, jumping up and down. They can't see you. Mm-hmm. Also, though, fun fact, the bit about the statues reminded me of, like, one of my favourite pieces of random cultural history that I know. Mm-hmm. So, in Croatia, in Dubrovnik, the city is walled, and the walls face to the east and the west. Mm-hmm. And to the east, it used to be to the one empire which basically ended up being the Islamic Empire. Mm-hmm. And to the west, it was the Christian Empire. And basically, the people of Dubrovnik were very Catholic, and they commissioned loads of statues of saints. And there are loads of blank spaces on the walls of the city because the eastern walls, when they put the statues of the saints there, basically caused a, a bit of a ruckus. Yeah. A bit of a religious conflict. <laughs> but the Croatian people were really good at like deals and money mm-hmm. so they just took the statues away so that anyone coming in from the east wouldn't see them and they put them on the west side so there was extra ones um, <laughs> where there isn't meant to be any but also there's a big massive bit outside a basilica like a church uh-huh. in one of the squares where there is clearly meant to be a statue and there isn't and when we asked why the statue got commissioned from I think somewhere in Italy mm-hmm. and didn't make it across the sea it drowned and no one ever replaced it. Ooh. So there's like a big empty, it's really creepy, like this big yeah. empty space where a statue's meant to be. That's also quite creepy that there's just one in the sea now as well. Yeah. Oh. So anyway, this, that was irrelevant, but that reminded me it's, of that. No, it's a very similar vibe. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, as you may be able to tell, the statues in this house are a really prominent feature of the novel. Mm. Madeline Miller and Susanna Clark had a really interesting conversation about them where Miller described the statues as being perfect pieces of dreams, which is just such a lovely phrase. (laughs) Clark said that when she was writing about the statues, she was aiming for the feeling of looking at tarot cards because tarot cards are strange images, yet they're somehow familiar, like they're striking, but you have a sense that you've seen them before. Mm. And that's what she wanted the statues to feel like, which I think she managed. And another big feature of Paranese is birds. Right. So okay. Susanna Clark is very interested in birds as messengers or as vectors of the supernatural. It's something she writes about in Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell as well. And one facet of that is birds being kind of like premonitions or indicators of things to come. So I'd like to read out this passage, which is about birds and messages and how the birds and the statues like come together in this book. So glad that you chose this book to read to me, the person who has a phobia of birds. Yeah, but the birds are nice, it's fine. Okay, that's fine. There's no, like, evil birds. Okay, that's good. So that passage before was sinister, and I was scared that there were going to be sinister birds. So this entry is titled, A Conversation. Entry for the 11th day of the sixth month in the year the albatross came to the southwestern halls. As well as my regular meetings with the other and the quiet, consolatory presence of the dead. Oh, which are um, skeletons. Okay. He hasn't just, like, killed someone. (laughs) I'll start that again. As well as my regular meetings with the other and the quiet, consolatory presence of the dead, there are the birds. Birds are not difficult to understand. Their behaviour tells me what they are thinking. Generally, it runs along the lines of, is this food? Is this? What about this? This might be food. I am almost certain that this is. Or occasionally, it is raining, I do not like it. (laughs) 
While ample for a brief neighbourly exchange, such remarks do not suggest a broad or deep intelligence. Yet it has occurred to me that there may be more wisdom in birds than appears at first sight, a wisdom that reveals itself only obliquely and intermittently. Once, it was an evening in autumn, I came to the doorway of the twelfth southeastern hall, intending to pass through the seventeenth vestibule. I found that I was unable to enter it. The vestibule was full of birds and the birds and the birds were all aflight. They circled and spiralled, creating a whirling dance. They filled the vestibule like a column of smoke, which grew darker and denser in places, and the next moment lighter and airier. I have witnessed this dance on several occasions, always in the evening and in the later months of the year. Another time I entered the ninth vestibule and found it full of little birds. They were of different kinds, but mostly sparrows. I had not taken more than a few steps into the vestibule when a large group of them took to the air. They flew together in one great swoop up to the eastern wall, then in another swoop to the southern wall, and then they turned and flew around me in a loose spiral. Good morning, I said. I hope that you are well. Most of the birds scattered to different perches, but a handful, maybe as many as ten, flew to the statue of a gardener in the northwest corner. They remained there for perhaps thirty seconds, and then, still together, they ascended to a higher statue on the western wall, the woman carrying a beehive. The birds remained on the statue of the woman carrying a beehive for a minute or so, and then they flew away. I wondered why of the thousand or so statues in the vestibule, the little birds had chosen these two to perch on. It occurred to me, it was no more than an idle thought, that both these statues might be said to represent industriousness. The gardener is old and bent, and yet he digs faithfully in his garden. The woman is pursuing her profession of beekeeping, and the beehive that she carries is full of bees who are also patiently carrying out their tasks. Were the birds telling me that I ought to be industrious too? That seemed unlikely. After all, I was already industrious. I was at that very moment on my way to the eighth vestibule to fish. I carried fishing nets over my shoulder and a lobster trap made from an old bucket. The warning of the birds, if that was what it was, seemed on the face of it nonsensical, but I decided nonetheless to follow this unusual line of reasoning and see where it took me. That day I caught seven fish and four lobsters. I threw none of them back. That night a wind came from the west, bringing an unexpected storm. The tides were made turbulent and the fish were driven away from their customary halls far out to sea. For the next two days there were no fish at all, and if I had not attended to the bird's warning, I would have hardly had anything to eat. This experience led me to form a hypothesis. Perhaps the wisdom of birds resides not in the individual, but in the flock, the congregation. I have tried to think of an experiment that would test this theory. The problem, as I see it, is that it is impossible to know in advance when such events will occur, and so the only viable course of action is months, more likely years, of careful observation and meticulous record-keeping. Unfortunately, this is not possible just now since so much of my time is taken up by my work with the other. I refer, of course, to our search for the great and secret knowledge. However, it is with this hypothesis in mind that I record something which happened this morning. I entered the second northeastern hall and, as had happened in the ninth vestibule, I found it full of small birds of different sorts. I called a cheerful good morning to them. 
Immediately, twenty or so flew in a great rush to the northern hall and alighted in the high statues. Then they flew in a swoop to the western wall. I recalled that on the previous occasion this behaviour had been the preface to a message. I am paying attention, I called to them. What is it that you wish to say to me? I watched very carefully what they did next. The birds separated into two groups. One group flew to the statue of an angel blowing a trumpet. The other group flew to the statue of a ship that travels on little waves. An angel with a trumpet in a ship, I said. Very well. The first group flew to a statue of a man reading from a large book. The second group flew to a statue of a woman displaying a large dish or shield. Upon the shield is a representation of clouds. A book in clouds, I said. Yes. Finally, the first group flew to the statue of a little child bowing its head to gaze at a flower, which it holds in its hand. The child's head is covered with such exuberant curls they are themselves like the petals of a flower. The second group of birds flew to a statue of a sack of grain being devoured by a horde of mice. A child and mice, I said. Very good, I see. The birds dispersed to different places in the hall. Thank you, I called to them. Thank you. Supposing my hypothesis to be correct, this is certainly the most elaborate communication that the birds have offered me. What is the meaning? An angel with a trumpet in a ship. An angel with a trumpet suggests a message. A joyful message? Perhaps. But an angel might also bring a stern or solemn message. Therefore, the character of the message, whether good or bad, remains uncertain. The ship suggests travelling long distances. A message coming from afar. A book in clouds. A book contains writing. Clouds hide what is there. Writing that is somehow obscure. A child and mice. The child represents the quality of innocence. The mice are devouring the grain. Little by little it is diminished. Innocence that is worn down or eroded. So this, as far as I can tell, is what the birds told me. A message from afar. Obscure writing. Innocence eroded. Interesting. I will allow some time to elapse, say a few months, and then I will examine this communication again to see if the intervening events can shed any light upon it, and vice versa. Wow, that's gorgeous. I know. I really enjoy that one, which is why I wanted to read out the whole thing. I love that, like, interpretation, like that he's doing the interpretation in front of you, and I totally get the tarot thing. Mm Mm-hmm. (gasps) that's so pretty yeah and I will leave it unanswered whether that was a message or not so yeah I have one more quote which is two entries one after the other and I wanted to include this one because it is another descriptive one one really shows you the incredible setting that Clark has imagined but I also think it's a good one to show you the tone of the book which you have already probably kind of gathered but it is a hard one to land on mm-hmm. and I'll think I'll read it out first and then try to explain what I mean about the tone without giving anything away mm-hmm. so a, a tiny bit of context for this is that Perinese has promised the other to document what stars can be seen in the sky from like a particular hall so this entry is titled a journey entry for the 19th day of the sixth month in the year that albatross came to the southwestern halls I spent today working at my usual tasks, fishing, gathering seaweed, working on my catalogue of statues. 
In the late afternoon, I gathered some supplies and set out to walk to the 192nd Western Hall. On the way, the house showed me many wonders. In the 45th vestibule, I saw a staircase that had become one vast bed of muscles. One of the statues that lines the wall of the staircase was all but engulfed in a blue-black carapace of muscles with only half a staring face and one white, outflung arm left free. I made a sketch of it in my journal. In the 52nd Western Hall, I came upon a wall ablaze with so much golden light that the statues appeared to be dissolving into it. From there I passed into a little antechamber with few windows where it was cool and shadowy. I saw the statue of a woman holding out a wide flat dish so that a bear cub could drink from it. As I approached the 78th vestibule, the pavements were strewn with rubble. At first I saw only a scattering here and there, but by the time I drew close to the vestibule I was walking over an uneven and treacherous floor of jagged stones. In the vestibule itself, a thin sheet of water still ran beneath the rubble. Broken statues were heaped in the corners. I walked on. In the 88th Western Hall, the pavement was free from debris, but I found another problem. A colony of herring gulls had built their nests in this hall, and my intrusion among them was met with fury. They squawked indignantly and flew at me, beating their wings and attempting to pick at me with their beaks. I waved my arms and shouted to ward them off. I reached the 192nd Western Hall. I stood at the single door and peered inside. The surrounding halls were full of a soft blue twilight, but this particular hall, which, as I have already said, has no windows, was dark, its statues invisible. A faint draught, like a cold breath, emanated from it. I am not accustomed to absolute darkness. There are very few dark places in the house. Perhaps here and there you will find the shadowy corner of an antechamber or an angle of derelict halls where the light is blocked by debris. But generally, the house is not dark. Even at night, the stars blaze down through the windows. I had imagined that all I would need to do to answer the other's question, what stars can be seen from the door of the hall, was to ascertain the exact orientation of the hall and then consult my star maps. But now that I was actually at the door, I realised that this plan was wildly optimistic. The door was approximately 4 metres wide and 11 metres high, which is huge for a door, but minuscule when compared to the vastness of the sky. I would not be able to tell which stars would be framed in the doorway unless I spent the night in the hall and saw for myself. I did not find this prospect appealing. I remembered how I climbed a staircase to the upper hall above the 19th Eastern Hall and found it filled with cloud. I remembered how that hall was full of gigantic figures in the throes of violent action, how every face was distorted by screams of rage or anguish. Suppose, I thought, this happened again. Suppose I went into the darkness of the 192nd Western Hall and I lay down to sleep, only to wake and find myself surrounded by horrors. I became angry at myself, disgusted at my own timidity. This was no way to think. Had I walked for four hours to reach this hall only to be afraid to go in? How ridiculous. I told myself that the fear I had experienced in that upper hall was highly unlikely to be repeated anywhere else. I had, after all, entered the 192nd Western Hall before. If the statues had been particularly violent or frightening, I would surely have remembered. 
Besides, I had an obligation to the other. He needed to know what stars were visible from the door. But still the darkness unnerved me. I put off entering it for a while. I sat down outside and ate and drank and wrote this entry in my journal. And now I'm on to the next entry, which is the 192nd Western Hall. Entry for the 20th day of the sixth month in the year that Albatross came to the Southwestern Halls. Having completed the previous entry in my journal, I entered the 192nd Western Hall. Dark and cold enveloped me. A little way in, I estimate about 20 metres, I turned to face the single door that aligned perfectly with a window in the corridor outside. I sat down and wrapped myself in my blanket. At first I was acutely conscious of the darkness at my back and the stares of the unknown statues. It was very quiet. The hall where I usually sleep, the third northern hall, is full of birds and at night I hear the little sounds as they shift and flutter on their perches, but as far as I could tell there were no birds in the 192nd western hall. They apparently found it as unsettling as I did. I made myself focus on the one thing familiar to me, the sound of the sea in the lower halls, the water lapping the walls in a thousand, thousand chambers. It is a sound that accompanies me all my days. I fall asleep to it every night, just as a child might fall asleep, safe on its mother's breast, listening to her heartbeat. And indeed, this is what must have happened now, because the next thing I knew was that I was waking suddenly out of sleep. A full moon stood in the centre of the single doorway, flooding the hall with light. The statues on the walls were all posed as if they had just turned to face the doorway, their marble eyes fixed on the moon. They were different from the statues in other halls. They were not isolated individuals, but the representation of a crowd. Here were two with their arms about each other. Here one had his hand on the shoulder of one in front, the better to pull himself forward to see the moon. Here a child held on to its father's hand. There was even a dog that, having no interest in the moon, stood on its hind legs, its front paws and its master's chest, pleading for attention. The rear wall was a mass of statues, not neatly arranged in tiers, but a jumbled, chaotic crowd. Foremost among them was a young man, who stood bathed in the moonlight, elation in his face, a banner in his hand. I almost forgot to breathe. For a moment I had an inkling of what it might be like if instead of two people in the world, there were thousands. That's so sad. Mm -hmm. So... In regard to the tone. <laughs> I forgot what we were even talking about there. Yeah. I got very absorbed. Piranesi's happy here. Mm -hmm. He doesn't see the maze-like world or the crashing seas or the birds as threatening. It's just how the world is. There's so much beauty in it. He feels at one with the setting. He takes his self-appointed role of documenting everything very seriously, mapping out the house and tracking the tides and the wildlife, the stars. But then you get moments like the end of this quote where he almost lets himself think that it's strange that only him and the other live there. And it's such a tricky thing to talk about without having read the book. But I will say the blurb of this book does end with saying the world that Piranesi thought he knew is becoming strange and dangerous which I suppose I'm trying to say is like very subtly being told to you in this passage. So that's about all I have to say. There's so much I would love to talk about, but 
it's such a short book mm-hmm. so I can't talk about plot because it just gives everything away but yeah I'd really recommend it for anyone who wants to read something unlike anything else um, I really want to read this. Yeah, and like I said, it's really short. I read it in a day. I read it like a morning and a night. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful, strange, genuinely one of the most unique books I've ever read. And I just, I don't know how you can not like this book. It's very like the type of book, like that tone and the the level of weirdness in those quotes is what I try to write like when I write yeah. prose. Yeah. Also, there's something so heartbreaking about the idea that this person lives with all these statues and that's it just occurring to him, that, like, there are only two people. It's just so sad. Yeah. Like, where does he think the statues came from? Yep, that's a question. (laughs) (laughs) Oh! Yeah, it's just... I don't know how to describe it other than it's just, like, very beautiful and strange. Mm. It's how I would describe this book, and I just love it. And yeah, I think you'd enjoy it as well. But anyway, <laughs> what are you infatuated with this week? This week, I am infatuated with something very different. You're going to need to give me a minute, actually, to recover <laughs> from that, because that was intense. I know, I also did, like, no analysis, because I was like, I don't know what to say about this. So I was like, I'll just read stuff out. Woo, <laughs> okay. Yeah, so my infatuation this week is... Malibu Rising by Taylor Jenkins Reid. Which I have also read and I and love. <laughs> so good. So for anyone who recognises the name, Taylor Jenkins Reid also wrote Daisy Jones and the Six, which is being made into a TV show, mm-hmm. and The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo. Those are two of my favourite novels of my adult life, I think. Yes. So I obviously had really high expectations for this novel, which it met, but it also s- subverted I think. Mm. So I'm going to explain that a little bit. Let me not get ahead of myself. (laughs) So this novel, as you can see from the cover, it's very different vibes. It's very beachy. It's very, looks very chill. It's described as the perfect beach read with the emotional depth of the ocean. So, (laughs) you know, that's, that's the vibe. And it does take place in the same universe as the novels I just mentioned. It's set in 1980s California in Malibu, which is a fucking vibe (laughs) and honestly i'm just going to read out the prologue first because i feel like it really sets the scene and i love a prologue yes malibu catches fire it is simply what malibu does from time to time tornadoes take the flatlands of the midwest floods rise in the american south hurricanes rage against the gulf of mexico and california burns The land caught fire time and again when it was inhabited by the Chumash in 1500 BCE. It caught fire in the 1800s when the Spanish colonisers claimed the area. It caught fire on December 4th, 1903, when Frederick and May Ringe owned a stretch of land now called Malibu. The flames seized 30 miles of coastland and consumed their Victorian beach house. Malibu caught fire in 1917 and 1929, well after the first movie stars got there. It caught fire in 1956 and 1958, when the longboarders and beach bunnies trickled onto its shores. It caught fire in 1970 and 1978, after the hippies settled in its canyons. It caught fire in 1982, 1985, and 1993, 1996, in 2003, 2007, and 2018 and times in between, because it is Malibu's nature to burn. 
At the city line of Malibu today stands a sign that reads Malibu, 27 miles of scenic beauty. The long, thin township, an area that hugs the slim coast for almost 30 miles, is made up of ocean and mountain, split by a two-lane thoroughway called the Pacific Coast Highway, or PCH. To the west of PCH is a long series of beaches, cradling the crystal blue waves of the Pacific Ocean. In many areas along the coast, beach houses are crammed along the side of the highway, competing for views narrow and tall. The coastline is jagged and rocky. The waves are brisk and clear. The air smells of fresh brine. Directly to the east of PCH lie the immense arid mountains. They dominate the skyline, sage green and umber, composed of desert shrubs and wild trees, brittle underbush. This is a dry land, a tinderbox, blessed and cursed with a breeze. The local Santa Ana winds speed through the mountains and valleys from the inland to the shore, hot and strong. Myth says they are agents of chaos and disorder, but what they really are is an accelerant. A tiny spark in the dry desert wood can grow to a blaze and run wild, burning bright orange and red. It devours the land and exhales thick black smoke that overtakes the sky, dimming the sun for miles, ash falling like snow. Habitats, brush and shrubs and trees, and homes, cabins and mansions and bungalows, ranches and vineyards and farms go up in smoke and leave behind a scorched earth. But that land is young once again, ready to grow something new. Destruction and renewal rising from the ashes. The story of fire. The Malibu fire of 1983 started not in the dry hills but on the coastline. It began at 28150 Cliffside Drive on Saturday, August 27th, at the home of Nina Riva, during one of the most notorious parties in Los Angeles history. The annual party grew wildly out of control sometime around midnight. By 7am, the coastline of Malibu was engulfed in flames, because, just as it is Malibu's nature to burn, so was it in one particular person's nature to set fire and walk away. That's so good when you know the end of the book as well. I know, it's so good. It's so good. I I love that whole passage. Yeah. So yeah, that was just to give everyone a little taster of this book because I feel like that explains it better than I ever could. (laughs) But apart from the fire, which we will get to, the book deals with fame and with family, which the other books that Taylor Jenkins Reid has written also do. And in this book... Our main character is not so much a character, but a family, the Rivas, that were mentioned in the prologue just there. If you had to pick a protagonist, it would be Nina Riva, who, at 25, is the eldest daughter of star singer Mick Riva. She is the wife of tennis champion Brandon Randall, and she is a surfer supermodel in her own right. And you watch this with me, but for anyone who doesn't know, we watched the sort of launch event for mm-hmm. this book, and... Taylor Jenkins Reid said that Nina Riva was loosely based on Brooke Shields, which makes total sense yeah, when you read the definitely. book. Nina has looked after her younger siblings, Jay, Hud and Kit, since they were teenagers. Mick, the father, left their mother, June, when they were small, and without giving too much away, June was unable to really take care of them, so it's fallen to Nina. And when we meet Nina at the start of this book, she's just been left by her husband for another woman in a house she didn't want, 
on the morning of this party, which she throws every year and doesn't want to go to, but she can't bear to cancel. Which all sounds very doom and gloom, but one of the things that I love most about this book is that the Riva siblings, having grown up in Malibu, are all surfers, and Taylor Jenkins Reid uses surfing right from the off as a motif to help communicate the heavier emotions in a way that's like light and fun and interesting to read. So what I wanted to do is read the first chapter that takes place out on the water, mm-hmm. and it's just Nina alone early in the morning. This is one of my favourite chapters. All of the things I'm going to read are from pretty early in the novel, except one or two, so there shouldn't be that many spoilers. Yeah. Each chapter, as you all know, takes place in an hour of the day of the party, so this is 8am. Nina was out in the surf, having a hard time finding the kind of long, slow right-handers she was looking for. She wasn't there to shred, and the waves weren't right for it that morning anyway. All she wanted was to ride her longboard gracefully, cross-stepping up the nose until the waves knocked her off. The beach was quiet. There was the glory of a tiny, explosive cove, protected on three sides by fifty-foot cliffs. While technically the beach was public, the only people who knew how to get to it were those who had access to private stairs, or those willing to hike the jagged coastline and risk high tide. That morning, Nina was sharing the cove with two teenage girls in neon swimsuits, who were sunbathing and reading Jackie Collins and Stephen King. Since Nina was the only one in the water, she hung out on her board just past the peak, unhurried. As she floated there, the wind chilling her wet skin, the sun crisping her bare shoulders with her legs dangling in the water, Nina was already getting a small slice of the piece she'd come out here for. An hour ago, she'd been dreading the party. She'd even fantasised about cancelling it. But she couldn't do that to Jay, Hud and Kit. They looked forward to this party every year, talked about it for months afterwards. The party had started out as a wild kegger years ago, a bunch of surfers and skateboarders from around town gathering at the Riva's house the last Saturday in August. But in the time since, Nina's own fame had risen, and she'd married Brandon, garnering even more attention. With each passing year, the party seemed to attract more and more recognisable people. Actors, pop stars, models, writers, directors, even a few Olympians. Somehow this once small get-together had become the party to be seen at. If only to be able to say you were there when. When, in 1979, Warren Rhodes and Lisa Crown got naked in the pool. When, in 1981, the supermodels Alma Amador and Georgina Corbin made out with each other in front of their husbands. When, last year, Bridger Miller and Tuesday Hendricks met for the first time, sharing a joint in Nina's backyard. They got engaged two weeks later, and then Tuesday left him at the altar back in May. Now this ran a headline that said, why Tuesday couldn't cross that bridge with Bridger. There was no end to the stories people would tell about what happened at the Riva party, some of which Nina wasn't even sure were true. Supposedly, Louis Davies discovered Alexandra Covington when she was swimming topless in Nina's pool. He cast her as a prostitute and let him down easy, and now, two years later, she had an Oscar. Apparently, at the party back in 1980, Doug Tucker, the new head of Sunset Studios, got plastered and told everyone that he had proof Celia St James was gay. Did Nina's neighbour Rob Lowe sing all of Jack and Diane with her other neighbour Emilio Estevez last year in her kitchen? People claimed so. Nina never knew for sure. She didn't always catch everything that happened in her own home didn't see every person that showed up. She was mostly concerned with whether her brothers and sister had a good time, and they always did. Last year, 
Jay and Hud had smoked weed with every member of the Breeze. Kit spent the entire night talking to Violet North up in Nina's bedroom, a week before Violet's debut album hit number one. Since then, Jay and Hud had tickets to the Breeze's shows whenever they wanted, and Kit did not shut up about how cool Violet was for weeks afterwards. So Nina knew she couldn't cancel a party like that. The Rivas might not be like most families, being just the four of them, but they had their traditions. And anyway, there was no good way to cancel a party that never had any invitations. People were coming whether she wanted them there or not. She'd even heard from her close friend Tareen, whom she'd met at a Sports Illustrated shoot, that Von Donovan was planning on coming. And Nina had to admit Von Donovan was perhaps the hottest guy she'd ever seen on screen. The way he smiled as he took off his glasses in the mall parking lot in Wild Night still got her. As Nina watched a swell come in just west of her, she decided the party was not a curse, but a blessing. It was exactly what she needed. She deserved a good time. She deserved to let loose. She could share a bottle of wine with Tareen. She could flirt. She could dance. Nina watched as the first wave in a set crashed just beyond her. It peeled slowly, consistently, beautifully to the right, exactly as she'd hoped. So when the next one came in, she paddled with it, caught the feel of the tide underneath her and popped up. She moved with the water, thinking only of how to compensate, how to give and take in perfect measure. She did not think of future or past, but only present. How can I stay? How can I hold on? How can I balance better, longer, with more ease? As the wave sped up, she hunched further down. As the wave slowed, she pumped her board. When she had her bearings, she danced lightly up to the nose, moving with a softness that did not compromise speed. She hovered there on the tip of the board, her feet balancing, her arms out to steady her. Throughout it all, this grace had always saved her. <laughs> so good. I know. Ah, so the first thing that I want to just appreciate here is that we've got that prologue of the destructive fire and then it's juxtaposed with this like peaceful, contemplative, like healing water, which is a dichotomy that is cliche, but it stands the test of time, I think, because it's true. Mm-hmm. And I also love how the exposition of this world and this party is weaved into the activity of the surfing. Because I think that the motion makes it interesting to read. But also that metaphor of like keeping balanced on a literal force of nature like the sea mm-hmm. tells you so much about Nina's character. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And also foreshadows so much about the book. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so good. So yeah, I really love that scene. I also love the weaving of like real people, like Emilio Estevez and like and Rob, Rob Lowe. Lowe yeah. <laughs> with all of these fictional people. And Celia St. James is a character in The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo. So I love that little like reference. Yeah. To, which McReeve also is. Yes. But anyway... I could go on and on about all the different characters in this novel because I love the way that all of them are presented, particularly Jay, the the brother just after Nina. He's my favourite as well. I, I love his story, yeah. but I'm not going to... I would be here all day. I'm not going to go there. <laughs> so I wanted to switch it up and talk about the structure of this novel, which I'm actually obsessed with. So the other novels in this universe have each picked one structure and leaned into it. So, yeah. like, with Daisy Jones, it was the interview format. With Evelyn Hugo, it was, like, a series of short stories, mm-hmm. one for each husband. But this one does something different because it takes place ostensibly over the course of one day, the day of the party, with, as I've said, each chapter being an hour counting down to that inevitable fire. But within those hours, which are told from the points of view of the Riva siblings, 
we also have flashbacks <laughs> to the relationship between their parents, Mick and June. So it is kind of like This Is Us, with the <laughs> present day flashing back to the past and introducing those characters, and you're trying to fill in the blanks. Mm-hmm. And I just think that's such a clever way to drive a narrative, mm-hmm. because as well as this like ticking your hours down towards the fire, you've got this need to find out how one event years and years ago has led to something in the present. Yeah. And it's a swelling technique, which is so clever and so well pulled off. So I'm just going to read this section, which is the end of a Nina chapter, going straight into like a Mick and June part. Yeah. She looked at herself in the sliding mirrors that covered her closets. She looked like her mother. She could see June in her eyes and eyebrows, the way her cheekbones rounded her face. She could see her mother in her body, could feel her in her heart, could sense her in everything she did sometimes. The older she got, the more obvious it became. Nina was 25 now, and that felt young to her because she was so much older than 25 in her soul. She had always had a hard time reconciling the facts of her life with the truth of it. 25, but she felt 40. Married, but she was alone. Childless, and yet hadn't she raised children? Nina threw on a pair of cuff jeans and a faded blondie t-shirt that she cut the arms off of. She left her hair damp and dripping slightly down her back. She grabbed her silver watch and put it on, noticing that it would be ten soon. She was meeting her brothers and sister for lunch at the restaurant at noon. While technically all of the Riva kids had inherited it, it was Nina who felt an obligation to make sure it continued to thrive. She did it not only for the people of Malibu, but for her mother and her grandparents who ran it before her. The weight of their sacrifices to keep it standing pushed her to do the same. And so she usually went over for an hour or two on Saturday mornings to do the spot checks and greet customers. This morning, she didn't really feel like going. Lately, she almost never felt like going. But her mere presence brought in customers and she felt an obligation to be there. So Nina slid her feet into her favourite leather flip-flops, grabbed the keys to her Saab and hopped in the car. And this is right after that. In 1956. Every Saturday night for three months, Mick took June to dinner. They went out for burgers and fries or Italian or steak, and they always shared dessert afterwards, fighting for the last bit of pie or ice cream. It had become a joke between the two of them, their mutual love for sugar. Once, Mick picked June up for a date with his hand closed into a fist. I have a gift for you, he said with a smile. June pried open his fingers to find a sugar cube on his palm. Sugar for my sugar, sweet for my sweet he said. June smiled. Quite the charmer, she said, as she took the cube from his hand. She put it right into her mouth and sucked on it. I understand you brought it as a joke, but I'm not going to let it go to waste. He kissed her right then, still tasting it on her lips. I brought a whole box, actually, he said, gesturing to the front seat, where a box of domino sugar cubes was resting against the back seat, nearer to a bottle of rye. They didn't even go out for dinner that night. They drove up the coast eating sugar cubes, drinking whiskey right out of the bottle, and teasing each other over who could control the radio. When the sun set, they parked at El Matador, a pristine and stunning beach hidden under the bluffs, home to rock formations so massive and breathtaking it looked as if the ocean had made its own Stotland Henge. Mick's windshield framed the waves coming in down the shore, a beautiful movie they weren't watching. The two of them were drunk and sugar rushed in the back seat. I love you, Mick said in June's ear. June could smell the whiskey on his breath, could smell it coming out of her pores. 
They'd had so much, hadn't they? Too much, she thought. But it had gone down so easy. It scared her sometimes, just how good it tasted. Ah, oh, so good. That line about the waves being a movie they weren't watching. Yeah. Oh. The reason that I picked that passage was that I love the disparity of it between someone young who's totally weighed down by responsibility immediately followed by the recklessness of the parents in their youth mm-hmm. that caused that. Yeah. And it's so sad because the Mick and June scene would be really fun on its own, but you're kind of weighed down by this knowledge that like you know how things are going to turn out for Nina. Yeah. And I think that's just one example of what makes that structure so engaging. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if that wasn't enough, <laughs> she changes up the structure halfway through, which so good so all the way through part one we have this balance of present and past and the time is swelling really slowly towards the party and then in part two at the party not only do the flashbacks stop but the narration completely changes so instead of the reliable choice of one of the rivas as like a focalizer as we've had throughout we end up getting the points of view of random guests and secondary characters as they enter the party which Totally, I don't know about you, but it really took me by surprise when that happened. It took me by surprise, but I loved it. Yeah. And then I was like, this makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) So, like, suddenly the book just crashes out of control like a wave, and the Reva's narrations are mixed with, like, ever-increasing interlopers that take us on totally unrelated journeys, Mm -hmm. meaning the time of the story is compressed, but the action widens out, Mm -hmm. so you've got all of these things all happening at the same time. And the effect is literally like being at an out-of-control party because the whole time you're being dragged down all these other rabbit holes of like actors and agents and like crashers and you're thinking like, where's Nina? Where's HUD? What's Jay doing? There's like people handing out cocaine and people having sex in a hot tub and like everyone's like trying to pull each other and then there's like these tenuous common threads, one of which that I don't think is too much of a spoiler to say, but the red-haired cocktail waitress who appears in every guest's narrative yeah like threading through them as a kind of anchor it's just so well done for a party scene also which i didn't realize until you read out but that scene that you read out of nina surfing and she's like oh i don't really know what's going on in my house Mm -hmm. i don't often meet all the guests and that's exactly what happens (laughs) you're just getting all the stories and she's not even there Uh uh-huh and so when we do eventually corral the reavers it's at the emotional climax of the novel, which I'm obviously not going to talk about. Yeah. But I wanted to read instead my favourite little micro-episode from the party because I think it's just such a perfect example of what you're saying, what was foreshadowed in Nina's surfing chapter. Mm-hmm. Something that people would talk about and that no one would really believe. Oh, I'm intrigued what one it is. So this is... It's only two pages. It's very short, but it was just my favourite little mini random one. So this is at 3am. Mm-hmm. Ted Travis was hell-bent on self-destruction. He was the biggest, highest-paid star on network TV, but none of that mattered to him since his wife died last year. He felt like he was falling apart inside, sobbing alone in his huge house, hiring hookers, shoplifting, upgrading from the occasional coke binge to a full-blown speed addiction, but all of the chaos of his soul wasn't showing on the outside. When he looked in the mirror, he could see he was just getting handsomer and handsomer. Turns out he looked even better with grey hair than with brown. Sometimes, when he looked at his own reflection, he could hear the ghost of Willa's voice in his head, laughing, telling him he had no right to age so well without her. 
drinking quieted it. At Nina's party, Ted had already downed half a bottle of whiskey, lost four grand on a bet to that girl from Flashdance, and then fallen asleep fully clothed in the shallow end of the pool. Someone had cannonballed into the water and woken him up. He climbed out. But then, her. A 43-year-old script supervisor named Victoria Brooks. He came across her in the living room, when his clothes had just stopped dripping. She was tall and lean and didn't have a single curve on her body. She had bleached blonde hair and dark eyebrows and a face that was positively breathtaking in profile. Ted, he said, putting out his hand as he walked up to her. Vicky rolled her eyes. Yeah, I know who you are. And you are? Vicky. Beautiful name. Let me get you a drink, Ted said as he gave her his TV smile. Vicky blew her cigarette away from both of them, her left hand pinning a high ball of vodka and soda against her right arm. I have one, thanks. What do I have to do to get a smile out of you? He asked her. Vicky rolled her eyes again. Sober up, maybe. You've embarrassed yourself about ten times already tonight. Ted laughed. You're right about that. I keep trying to find a way to enjoy myself, but it's pointless. I'm too goddamn sad all the time. Vicky finally looked Ted in the eye. She was sad too. God, she was sad. Her husband had died in a boating accident seven years ago, and she had resigned herself to loneliness since then. She was not willing to love again, if this was how it felt. One drink, Vicky said, surprising herself. Ted smiled. He got her a fresh vodka soda, straightened his damp clothes, and went back to her. I want to take you out, he said. So what should I do to convince you? Are you a grand gesture sort of lady? Vicky sighed. I guess so, but I'm not going on a date with you. Ted smiled exactly the way he did on cool nights. He was just going through the motions, but he was good at pretending. That's why they paid him so much money to do it. Come on, I might just charm you. Watch this. He started looking around for the easiest way to make a scene. He settled on swinging from the chandelier. Ted handed Vicky his drink and started climbing onto the mantel. He pointed at a surfer by the coffee table. Hey man, pass me the chandelier, would you? The guy, content to play along, stood on top of the coffee table and grabbed the base of the chandelier, slowly moving it towards Ted. Ted grabbed a handful of the crystals on the bottom. Vicky, let me take you to dinner, he said, and then he swung himself across the room, hanging on for dear life. He hit the opposite wall and then let go, <laughs> crashing onto the sofa with the howl of an injured animal. Vicky found herself running to him. Are you okay, she said. Come on, get up. She put her arms around Ted to help him. The warmth of her hands made him feel, for one half second, no longer alone. Instead of standing up with her, he pulled her down to him. Can I kiss you, he said, and when she smiled, he did it. She felt his soft lips on hers, and she did not balk. A thrill ran through her like a bolt. She pulled back, speechless, and then, drunk and confused, and momentarily desperate for the very thing she thought she'd never want again, she kissed him once more. It may have looked absurd from the outside, but it felt sort of magical to the two of them. The surprise of sincere desire. The people around them cheered as another idiot decided to swing from the chandelier. But Ted was already planning his next escapade. Have you ever stolen something, Vicky? He asked as his eyebrows went up and a smile crept over his face. <laughs> it's so good! I know! I love that one and the one with that you mentioned with like the threesome in the hot tub. Yes, it's just so 
funny. <laughs> it's so funny. I love the narration of that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, what I love about all of these things is that those characters don't really get a follow-up. No. Like, they're just there in that one chapter for texture, but fully rounded out in two pages. Mm-hmm. And I can't get over, like, that mad switch in structure and how much it perfectly mirrors the pace and shape of the surfing motif. Yeah. And I just really want everyone to appreciate how intentionally that has been crafted. Because the effect of it, like, the way that it feels as a reader, is just so incredibly easy to read. Yeah. It just flows so perfectly that you would be forgiven for not really noticing it. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. But I just think it's brilliant. And it's, as you can tell, it's funny. And the nice thing that we've already discussed about this book is that even though there's loads of drama there's and loads of heart mm-hmm. there's very little trauma and like f- like as a reader yeah it's it is a light read still I'd yeah say. they're like all of her books they're emotional and they're dramatic but they're never like hard <laughs> yeah they're not gritty yeah it's like like a rom-com kind of drama emotion yeah it makes you feel everything and even but even the sadness isn't yeah um like a hard sadness yeah yeah yeah. it's very nice i also i read her books so quickly as well like i fly through them yeah you're so good (laughs) um but yeah that's all i'm really gonna say about it because i don't want to give away too much of the plot and the structure was my favorite thing Mm -hmm. and it's one of those ones that when i first read it I was like, oh, I don't know if this is my favourite one compared to Daisy Jones or Evelyn Hugo, but I think it's maybe the most well-crafted. Yeah. I also think, again, like, after sitting with it for a bit, I think that's the one I'm more likely to reread again, like, sooner. Yeah, maybe. Because I, I love the other, like, well, she has quite a lot, but I love the other two in sort of this universe. But, like, I'm not dying to read them again, but I actually would read this again. And I only read it, like, last week. <laughs> See, I don't know, because I am dying to read Daisy Jones again. And since you've read Evelyn Hugo, I want to read it again. I know, but I just mean, like, so soon. So soon, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it was really, like... I feel like there'd be a lot to go back to that you didn't catch the first time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's. And there's so. so much going on in it that you don't really get bored. So, yeah, yeah it was really good. <laughs> For our writing chat this week, we have decided to take on common writing advice that we ignore. (laughs) So what have you got for that? I tried to think of those maybe like overused writing advice phrases that you often hear. Mm -hmm. And the, the first one I thought of is that people often say if you want to write novels, you should start by writing short stories. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's something I heard a lot. And I do understand that to a certain extent because writing short stories gives you the practice of like writing a beginning, middle and end, right? Like you, you learn how to craft an arc. Mm-hmm. And I think it's good to practice endings because they're often like the hardest part of a story. However... Short stories and novels are very different. Oh, they're different. Um, short stories are so much more condensed. You don't have the luxury of space to be like super descriptive or to like 
have an extended or extensive character arc. Yeah. Um, and also a novel is like just practically is like at least five times the length of a short story. So if you're used to writing a story for of like ten thousand words, then you're going to find it harder to write a novel, which these days is on average around like eighty thousand. Mm-hmm. So I think writing short stories is great practice, but I don't like the idea that you're expected to master those and then like level up to novels yeah because they're just wildly different they've also got completely different histories like i feel like the history of the short story is very masculine and Mm -hmm. very american yes and the history of the novel is very feminine and very english yeah yeah they're coming from completely different places yeah so it is one of those ones where i like i get it like i think it's good to practice short stories Mm. but i just think if if you want to write a novel just write it (laughs) like don't think that you have to like master one before you move on to the other one thing i will say is that i think some people think that they're gonna sit down and write their novel in a one-er and some people can Mm -hmm. but i think that more often like with me what has happened is that i have written some short stories Mm -hmm. that aren't complete stories because they all go together in this novel Mm -hmm. But that is a good way to think of your novel as a series of short stories. Yeah. If you're struggling to write, like, if the idea of a novel daunts you. Yeah. And you have a world, you can write stories in that world until you figure out what you're doing. Yeah, I do understand that. But yeah, the idea of having to master one form to do another is bollocks. Yeah. And I do just have, like, another quick one. Yeah. Which is that Stephen King, in his book On Writing, Mm -hmm. which is great says that you should never use adverbs because they're lazy mm. and I really do limit the amount of adverbs that I use because I do agree with him that you often end up with a better sentence when you don't use adverbs mm-hmm. but sometimes you do just need one or two and that's okay yeah so I also I feel like sweeping <laughs> statements like always and never yeah are just bad writing advice in general yeah because it wouldn't be there if you if there wasn't a use for it yeah he has very good advice but that's one where I'm like eh. Yeah, see where you're coming from, but no. <laughs> yeah. Also, it depends what you're writing, because I feel like if you're writing, like, a script, adverbs would be really useful. Yeah, but I feel like he wouldn't... I don't think he was thinking okay, scripts. that's fair. He's, he writes novels. Okay. I was just thinking, like, I don't know if this was, like, writing in general or just writing novels. So, yeah, what are yours? Mine are... So, a lot of the time, I, I just Google common writing advice. And yeah, I probably I, want, I could have done that. I wanted to see which ones were like that I disagreed with because I yeah. couldn't think straight off which ones I actively ignore. Yeah, a lot of the advice that came up were like, "Don't bother with prologues or slow beginnings. Get right into the action. Anything else is too self-indulgent." No, I don't like that. Nope. Like it probably <laughs> is, but I do it anyway. Yeah, because I like to ease in, I like to set the stage. Yeah. If I'm going to have an omniscient narrator or, like, a future narrator give a wee comment on what's about to go down, as we've seen with Malibu Rising, that works. Yes. I like a bit of foreshadowing, so I just say no to Mm -hmm. that advice. Also, people often say not to get too bogged down in the detail of your description and language until you've got the bones of your story sorted. Mm -hmm. Which, again, makes sense to me in theory. Yeah. But for me, as someone who comes at writing from poetry the story is the details for me. So I'm much more a sentence-by-sentence writer than, like, a scene sketcher. Does it hold me back and ruin my ability to make a plot? Yes. (laughs) Will I say stop? No. 
Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I write all the details and then add in description around it, mm. if that makes sense. So I kind of do a bit of that, but not really. Like, I... all my, like, redrafting is me adding in description, basically. Right, okay. See, but me, then, no, like but I... there will be very specific points where I'm like, this is a very specific detail that needs to be mentioned <laughs> in the first draft. So. I feel like for me, I don't always have a plot, and so I find my story in my descriptions yeah. and my details, and then I'm like, oh, that's a thing. I'm gonna like yeah, I write my way sense. to my plots through my descriptions. Yeah, which means that I have to do a lot of editing mm-hmm. because like a lot of the time, then when I find out where I'm going, I'm like, okay, this bit was actually unnecessary. Yeah. But, yeah, I don't, <laughs> I don't seem scared. Do you have a quickfire favourite this week? Yes, my quickfire favourite is Bo Burnham's Netflix special, Inside. Oh, it's so good. <sighs> I tried to condense this, but it's quite long, so <laughs> strap in, guys. Um... I think Bo Barnum's incredible. I think he's one of the best comedians slash musicians slash filmmakers that we have. For anyone who doesn't know, his two previous specials were filmed in front of an audience. They're comedy, musical, live performances. But Inside was filmed by himself, all in one room, over the span of a year during the pandemic. So, to start explaining what this special is, I actually want to quote a tweet from Hazel Hayes. Oh, I love Hazel. Um, about one of the songs, White Woman's Instagram, (laughs) which is great. She says, which I 100% agree with, I have never felt so simultaneously seen and attacked. The song is at once a scathing takedown of our transparent, ego-driven comparison culture and the tender tribute to those rare earnest moments that shine through the bullshit. And I think this applies for like the whole show, really. Bo is pointing out, how addicted we are to the internet, to consumer culture, cancel culture, comparison. But I think he's also saying that the internet did help us this past year. It's been a terrible year, and but we've all been able to stay connected with people because of things like FaceTime, which mm. he has a song about. I mean, he's literally made a feature-length film to go straight on the internet, so he knows that dichotomy that I think a lot of people relate to or embody, which is that we hate how much we're on our phones but we're also not in a position to abandon them. Yeah. So I don't know, it's just, it's made me think a lot more than his other specials have. I think it's because you do see the decline of his mental health throughout the year, which is actually really sad to witness. However, I think you can also tell that the project really... I don't want to say saved him because I think that gives the wrong message but like I think it gave him something to focus on and you can see how much of his energy has gone into this project. Yeah. And even though I adore his other two specials What and Make Happy, I feel like this is his best and the most thematically tight of the three. Yeah, I think it's amazing how it's like part documentary but also so contrived Mm -hmm. and that's literally the themes. Yep. (laughs) <laughs> yep. <laughs> so yeah, there's just examples of some of the songs. There's songs about being a straight white man who wants to be an ally for people, cancel culture, Instagram, FaceTiming, sexting. There's two songs about Jeff Bezos. <laughs> um, and the song Welcome to the Internet, I have seen so many people call his best song ever. 
it's so intense and claustrophobic and flits between upbeat and calm and it feels exactly like being on the internet. Absolutely. It feels like Twitter. Yeah, it's a masterpiece. I should have like written some of the lyrics out um, and quoted them, but they're they're brilliant. I think there's one about like here's how to flirt with girls or and here's how to build a bomb. Yeah. Like it's oh Yeah, it's like something some like something innocuous or any famous woman's feet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like, so yeah, it's also just really creative as well. He parodies Twitch streamers, YouTube react videos. There's so many genres of song, and like I said, he did it all himself in one room. And you can tell I'm obsessed with it. So please go watch it and listen to the album of the songs. Um, it's on Spotify, and it's incredible. And Bo Burnham's a genius. Rant over. <laughs> I mean, yeah. To be fair, like I've. I don't want to say being made. <laughs> I have yeah. been given the great opportunity to watch these specials in yeah. our home by you. Because I, I watch them a lot. <laughs> um, and I like the others. And this one, I don't think I loved as much as you, but I don't love Bo Burnham or comedy specials as much as you. Yeah. But this one was definitely the one that I thought, like, this is a very good piece of television. Yeah. I think Make Happy, which is the one before this, was a really great... Or you know what? Between both of them, between What and Make Happy, there's particular songs that I think are really moving. Whereas I found, like, the whole of this really moving. Yeah. So, yeah, I just think... He's been very, like, vulnerable with this one, which is great. He created a great thing. (laughs) Well done, Bo Burnham. (laughs) What's your quickfire favourite? My quickfire favourite is the whole mixtape that Griff just released. Okay. So Griff is a London-based singer-songwriter, and I can't really think of how to describe her sound other than the whole album gives me the same feeling as the one song Delicate by Taylor Swift. <laughs> like, for anyone that knows that song. It's like plinkety sounds and synthy. Mm-hmm. And, like, our vocals are sometimes really, like, breathy and chill and some things, they're very, like, strong and vulnerable. And it's just amazing. And I've been obsessed with her single, One Foot in Front of the Other, for a few weeks now. Because it's all about, like, healing and taking things at your own pace. And it's just, like, it's a very uplifting song. But her new song that came out when the whole mixtape dropped, Shade of Yellow, is my new favourite. Because it fixes on this one image over and over and it just scratches like a really good itch in my brain. (laughs) So the hook of the song is Because there's a light in your room and the lamp is a shade of yellow and it makes me feel safe and sound and I swear that's rare these days. Yeah, there's a light in your room and it burns like a shade of yellow and it makes me feel safe in the head and I swear that's rare these days. Mm. And I just, like, I can see the yellow lamp. Yeah. And it it just pleases me so much. <laughs> and the music is so beautiful. And, like, I don't know. I feel like I listen to a lot of singer-songwriters in Griff's, like, oeuvre. Like, mm-hmm. she's in the same kind of school of songwriting as, like, Maisie Peters, Elle Devine, all of those kind of girls. Mm-hmm. And I love all of them. But her music is different. And it, like, it hits a very weird place in my emotions. I don't think I've ever heard of her. And yeah, she performed at, what was the big awards that just happened? Um, 
was it the was it the Brits that just happened or was it something else MTV Music Awards or something I don't know mm. some award show happened recently and she was there and she's kind of gotten a bit of a boost since then yeah so if you've heard of her but you haven't heard her yet go listen it's worth it have an insight for us you go first at this bit do i yeah sorry <laughs> i mean i can go first but do i yeah you go first because okay. it, it used to be a rant and then i'd like lighten oh right yeah okay <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm really tired i know do you have a route for us this I do, week i do have a route for us this week <laughs> i'm gonna leave that <laughs> it's been a really long week guys um <laughs> My route, because it was relevant to my infatuation, yeah. is the word Malibu. Oh. So I thought this had like an interesting etymology. Obviously, the definition is it's a beach city northwest of Los Angeles. But the word is said to be from a native language, Chumash. I hope I'm saying that correctly. And the name of one of their settlements nearby, Homaliwo, which is said to mean where the surf sounds loudly. So Malibu means where the surf sounds loudly. That's nice. And I love the idea that that word means that, and the second word of the title is rising. Mm. So it's like the surf sounds loudly rising. Mm -hmm. Because that's how the novel is. (laughs) Yeah. Because it's like coming to this climax. And yeah, I just thought, I don't know if that was intentional. I don't know if it was just the place. Yeah, I've actually just realised that I never paid attention to that title and I never thought about what rising meant in the context of this book. I think it also <laughs> it's also about like, you know, that the way that the city or the place changed over all those years. Yeah. But but yeah, I thought it gave a nice dimension yes. to the title. So that's my route for this week. Nice. Do you have an insight for us? Yeah. So, again, strap in, lads. This is a long one. I'm ready. (laughs) So, today, we're going to do a deep dive into Enneagrams. Okay. So, this section will be a lot longer than normal, but I think it's interesting. So, before this episode, I took an Enneagram test. I had Rebecca take one, and you know what your number is, but you haven't looked into it. No. Right. So today I'm going to talk about our results and then I have a really cool thing to tell you about which I think you will enjoy and I think our listeners will as well. Okay. So, for anyone who doesn't know, an Enneagram test is like another personality test. It's a bit like a Myers-Briggs test and it basically suggests that there are nine types of personalities numbered one to nine and you fall into one of those. Although you can also have high percentages in other numbers as well. Mm-hmm. And what I've done is I've looked at quite an in-depth website, which will be linked in the show notes. It has a breakdown of the personality type. It tells you your basic fears, desires, motivations, examples of people with the same number, what it's like when you're healthy or unhealthy, what your addictions are, some personal growth advice. Oh God. It's full on. I'm go- I might need to actually lie down more. <laughs> but today I'm not gonna like I'm not going that deep. It's right. Fine. Okay. Good. I've just picked out bits and pieces that I think are interesting. So, Rebecca, uh-huh. your Enneagram number is two, okay. which is also referred to as the helper. This is the caring interpersonal type, and some other words to describe you is generous, demonstrative, people-pleasing, and possessive. The brief description of type two is 
Twos are empathetic, sincere and warm-hearted. They are friendly, generous and self-sacrificing, but can also be sentimental, flattering and people-pleasing. They are well-meaning and driven to be close to others, but can slip into doing things for others in order to be needed. They typically have problems with possessiveness and with acknowledging their own needs. At their best, they're unselfish and altruistic, and they have unconditional love for others. Two's basic fears is of being unwanted or being unworthy of being loved, and their basic desire is to feel loved. Your key motivations are want to be loved, to express their feelings for others, to be needed and appreciated, to get others to respond to them, and to vindicate their claims about themselves. Oh, wow. <laughs> so some examples of type twos are, and I picked out just the best ones, Elizabeth Taylor. Nice. Eve Harrington from All About Eve. Hmm. Priscilla Presley. Richard Simmons. Stevie Wonder. And the best for last, Dolly Parton. <gasps> yes! <laughs> I knew me and Dolly were kindreds. <laughs> I knew we were. I got you, Dolly. Yeah. So that's, like, all I'm going to read out, like... <laughs> Like I said, it's a very in-depth site, but I just stuck to the brief blurb for time's sake because I'm going to do mine too. So my Enneagram number is four, which is also called the individualist. It's the sensitive, introspective type, and some other descriptive words are expressive, dramatic, self-absorbed, and temperamental. (laughs) I feel like they've got us the wrong way around a bit. No, they haven't. (laughs) (laughs) So the brief description is, fours are self-aware, sensitive and reserved. They are emotionally honest, creative and personal, but can be moody and self-conscious. Withholding themselves from others due to feeling vulnerable and defective, they can also feel disdainful and exempt from ordinary ways of living. Yeah, okay, this is you. They typically have problems with melancholy, self-indulgence and (sighs) self-pity. At their best, they're inspired and highly creative. They are able to renew themselves and transform their experiences. The basic fear is that they have no identity or personal significance. Their basic desire is to find themselves in their significance, to create an identity. And key motivations are they want to express themselves in their individuality, to create and surround themselves with beauty, to maintain certain moods and feelings, to withdraw to protect their self-image, to take care of emotional needs before attending to anything else, and to attract a rescuer. Oof! <laughs> okay. <laughs> Some examples of people are Virginia Woolf, oh. Anne Frank, Joni Mitchell, Bob Dylan, Stevie Nicks, Johnny Depp, Winona Ryder, and I like these two, Tennessee Williams, and a streetcar named Desire's Blanche Dubois. <laughs> yes! <laughs> How weird is it that you have a little cat statue called Blanche? I know, she is named after Blanche de Bois as well. <laughs> okay, so now we know our numbers, we come to my cool thing. Okay. Right, and that is Sleeping at Last, who's a band who make very beautiful music, have an album called Enneagram. The tracks are titled 1 to 9, and each song is told from the perspective of the corresponding personality type. Okay. So essentially, everyone has a song that has been written precisely for them. And I would like to read out the lyrics to both of our songs, because I definitely feel connected to mine, so I'm intrigued to see if you feel the same way about yours. Okay. And I'll do yours first again. And I was going to pick out lyrics, but they're all good, so I'm just basically just going to like read it out like a poem, but feel free to react okay (laughs) so this is two by sleeping at last sweetheart you look a little tired 
when did you last eat? Come in and make yourself right at home. Stay as long as you need. Tell me, is something wrong? If something's wrong, you can count on me. You know I'll take my heart clean apart if it helps yours beat. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) It's okay if you can't find the words. Let me take your coat and this weight off your shoulders. Like a force to be reckoned with, a mighty ocean or a gentle kiss, I will love you with every single thing I have. Like a tidal wave, I'll make a mess, or calm waters if that serves you best. I will love you without any strings attached. Oh. It's okay if you can't catch your breath, you can take the oxygen straight out of my own chest. I know exactly how the rule goes, put my mask on first. No, I don't want to talk about myself, tell me where it hurts. I just want to build you up, build you up, till you're good as new. And maybe one day I will get around to fixing myself too. I don't even know where to start. Already tired of trying to recall when it all fell apart. I just want to love you. To love you. To love you well. I just want to learn how, somehow, to be loved myself. Like a force to be reckoned with. A mighty ocean or a gentle kiss. I will love you without any strings attached. And what a privilege it is to love. A great honour to hold you up. Like a force to be reckoned with, a mighty ocean or a gentle kiss, I will love you with every single thing I have. Like a tidal wave, I'll make a mess, or calm waters if that serves you best. I will love you without any strings attached. I will love you without a single string attached. (laughs) (laughs) Do you feel seen? (laughs) I have two things to say in response to that. Yes. One is that approximately 18 months ago, maybe two years now, I wrote an essay. And that essay's title was Why Being an Unrequited Love is the Best Kind. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> the second thing is that I tell everyone that I relate to Joe March most from <laughs> Little Women. And I do, except there is one line where. Joe March and I diverge and I literally had this thought the other day because I watched the scene on like a TikTok Mm -hmm. and it is where it's her women monologue Mm -hmm. um, which I fully agree with until she says I care more to be loved Mm. I want to be loved Mm. because I think no I like to be the one that loves more (laughs) yeah so that's my response to that. Then okay. you can do with that what you like. <laughs> okay. We'll move on to mine. Yeah. Okay, so this is four by Sleeping at Last. I'm turning out the lights to remember how to see until a renaissance takes place and resuscitates the colour of paint and divinity. As if God held the building blocks of every beautiful thing, in this game of hide and seek, I can't help but think the originary has swallowed the key. Bodies fashioned out of dirt and dust, for a moment we get to be glorious. Ice sculptures adorned in light, sand castles built tall in between the tides. Maybe I'm hiding behind metaphor, maybe my heart needs to break to be sure. One day I'll wear it all in my sleeve, the insignificant with the sacred unique. But I've fallen in love with a ghost, I lost my balance when I needed it most. And this blurry photograph is proof. Who, what, I'm not sure, but it feels like truth. I'm stuck swimming in shadows down here. It's been forever since I came up for air. 
flashlight in hand, determined to find authenticity only poetry could even begin to try to describe. Bodies fashioned out of dirt and dust, for a moment we get to be glorious, get to be glorious, get to be glorious. What if we already are who we've been dying to become? In certain light I can plainly see a reflection of magnificence hidden in you, maybe even in me. Whoa. <laughs> yeah, I love there's a line about ghosts in the one. Yeah, that's, that's about mine. <laughs> So there you go. If you're an Enneagram two or four, those are your songs um, told from your perspective. Or you can check out the album Enneagram to find yours. I actually listened to this album before knowing my Enneagram number. And like, hand on heart, I had such a reaction to this song, like mine. I had it on as just like background music, which I often do with their other albums. And this was like the first time I was listening to this one. Just kind of had it on, not really paying attention. And then the line, maybe I'm hiding behind metaphor. Like my ears like pricked up. And I was like, what is this? <laughs> um, and thus created this segment to talk about it. So yeah, Sleeping At Last do loads of conceptual songs. I also love their album Space, which has a song for each planet and the moon and the sun. So maybe I'll find a way to talk about that album one day. I don't know. Oh my god, um, you should do a Ruling Planets. Ooh. For our Astro Chart. I will look into that. Because <laughs> yeah, I don't know what the perspective that they're telling is. Mm. Like I've not listened to the lyrics enough to work out if it's if they're significant. Yeah. Um, I'm sure they are though. So yeah, that's that's our Enneagrams and then also just some nice songs. <laughs> well, I'm going to have to download that album and yep. I'm going to absorb that song into my bones. Yep. That line about something about, like, I'll crack my heart open to... Mm-hmm. Yep. I'll take my heart clean apart if it helps yours beat. <laughs> yep. Wow. <laughs> Love that. So our question this week is from Hannah and she has asked if you had to live the rest of your life in the world of just one book and you'd be stuck there until you died where would you pick? I would pick the world of I mean technically it's the book series but I mean I'll pick the third in the book series then (laughs) the world of the queen of the tearling Mm. which is quite like relatively underrated I think people don't talk about it I don't think I knew what it was until you told me about it. But it's my favourite fantasy series. Yeah. And it's basically like an oldie worldy kingdom. Like and they do have magic, but they also have science. And it's a sci fi fantasy dystopia. Mm-hmm. But with old like fairy tale kingdom vibes. Yeah. So I love that it has both of those things and I would like to live in that kingdom. Nice. Mine's probably obvious and maybe slightly cheating. But I would just live in one of Erin Morgenstern's books. Mm. So the Starless Sea or the Night Circus. Because real life still exists. So that's maybe not the right thing to pick for this specific question. But my my thinking was like, it's real life so I'd still like survive. <laughs> <laughs> um, but in reality I'd spend my time like either following a magical circus around the world or disappearing into magical doors to go to a underground library when the real world just gets too much <laughs> sounds alright because that's what I'd like to do now so <laughs> the 
world is always too much. <laughs> so yeah, that's it. Thanks, Hannah. <laughs> Thank you, Hannah. I love, I love that mine is like, yeah, this has vibes that I like, and you're like, this is what I would like to do with my time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, though. Because <laughs> I just don't... All my fantasy book like the books I love like it's just they're dangerous yeah mine is dangerous too to be fair but I feel like there's got to be like a tavern somewhere where like shit's not happening people are just living their lives and I would like to be a background character yeah maybe I'd just live in sex or crows and just go like live in the crow club or something yeah (laughs) and just never leave (laughs) be safe So that's us this week. If you have any comments or questions in our email, it's infatuatedpodcast at outlook.com. We also have social media, which is linked in the show notes, along with everything we've talked about today, including the Infatuated Mix, which has all the music we mention. We will have our two songs on there for sure. And yeah, please rate and review us on your podcast apps because that helps get the podcast out there. And I think that we should get a thread started. Please tag us and write your Enneagram number and write your favourite lyric of your song. Yes, do that. That's such a good idea. See you later. (laughs) Bye. Bye. Bye.